0: Welcome back to the Known Pleasures podcast, the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk and new wave movements of the late 70s and early 80s. We are back in the saddle, but also back on Zoom. So be warned, the audio quality may vary throughout. As always, you will find a link in the description that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. In today's podcast, we are responding to an overwhelming amount of requests for this band. So, without any further ado, here's Patrick to introduce the subject of today's episode.
1: Where why? Hit singles? No. Hit albums? No. Unusually charismatic singer? Unforgettable visual image? Brilliant band name? No. 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 So, why? 46 years after they formed, are we talking about wire? Pink Flag, Chairs Missing, 154, might sound like the opening line of a really good poem. It is though the list of albums released between 1977 and 79, which despite making only the barest dent in the charts, remain among the most influential of the era. Beloved by everyone from Johnny Marr to Elastica, from R.E.M. to Henry Rollins to Sonic Youth, Wire are still, as Rolling Stone noted in 2017, punk's ultimate cult band. So, looking back today on those three LPs and trying to surf in early on a projected wave of copper-clad puns, are we at known pleasures encountering a little resistance about Wire? Or did we love them in the past but that view is no longer current? Or have I run out of puns and we should just get straight into the podcast? Thank you.
2: Thank you. Uh,
1: Mark, you came up with a good pun to sort of introduce the entire podcast.
2: Well, it was just, why are we talking about wire? Simple (laughs) and eloquent, just just like me. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Well, it's a really good question because you were just saying off air, if I can use a technical term, Mm. (laughs) Graham, that you found this uh, one of the more difficult podcasts to research for. And I think that kind of goes to the heart of the whole wire thing for me because they're always talked about in the sort of holy trinity of post-punk gang of four Joy division wire whenever there's a discussion about this era that we talk about they're always one of the bands and there's less known about them in my kind of knowledge mm. anyway than the other two and i don't know why that is but maybe that's the deliberate thing
1: they're always floating around on the, the periphery of my friends so i would hear about my hear the occasional song on three triple r or three pbs on public radio in melbourne um, but I didn't know anyone who had any of their records compared to the kind of big bands, with, which for me would have been Joy Division and The Cure and the, sort of, the more atmospheric stuff. They just never really figured, and, and I'm not 100% sure why, because the more research you do into a band like Wire the more you realise just just how influential
0: they were. I was just going to say that uh, this is the first time we've done a a podcast where not all of us have been very familiar with the band that we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. And um, I only really, like I used to see their names in ads in New Musical Express and Sounds magazine, but I never once really heard much of their music. I did have that Live at the Roxy album on cassette that had um, The Lowdown and 12XU on it. But, yeah, I I think the radio station in Brisbane that we used to listen to didn't play very much wire. Yeah, so this is new territory for me. I've had to discover this music as a middle-aged man. (laughs) I do everything as a middle-aged man now, by the way, not just listen to music.
2: Mm. I'm going to posit a theory that they advanced so quickly that they kind of left the scenes behind a little bit that they almost created, and possibly by the time that sound was there, they'd moved on to something else, and, in fact, they'd broken up by the end of 1979. So that might be something to do with it. But certainly in Australia, they weren't featured particularly much on alternative radio, uh, and I, I would have struggled to name, you know, a couple of songs back in mm-hmm. those days. I, I was certainly aware of them. But but mm-hmm. that is that is what makes this more interesting anyway. Should we start at the start, Patrick, with one of your yes. background <laughs> stories? I mean, I know all this. Graham knows all this. but uh, Yeah, knows. of course,
1: yeah, yeah. We've all read all the books out there about why there are just so many of them. It's hard to mm. know where to start. It's like... Picking, picking one from the packed library shelves is such such a challenge. It but um, Colin Newman, the singer, to kind of start with him and to go into extended analysis of all four of their, their childhoods. But let's start with Colin. He grew up west of London, Salisbury, out that way, around the kind of area of Stonehenge, um, <laughs> the Salisbury Plain, where there was a famous episode of Yes, Prime Minister, where there was a lost dog called Benji. Name, okay, lot bring
2: it in, bring it back, <laughs> bring it
1: <your> back. <laughs> okay, so let's go to Watford School of Art, hmm. which is where the band really came together. I don't know when Colin started there, like maybe 1973 74 ish. And he uh joined a band with a fellow called George Gill, and the band kind of slowly assembled under the name Was it Overload or Overlord? Overload, I've got it. <laughs> and, and uh. Yeah, playing George Gill's songs, which were apparently pretty terrible. And then George Gill had the misfortune uh, during an act of attempted larceny, trying to steal an amplifier from another band who he thought were terrible, fell down some stairs, missed a few rehearsals because he was in, in hospital and, uh, and they basically wire formed in his absence. <laughs> that's a bit harsh, so, I think, don't you think? <laughs> it was. I should say it was an alleged act of attempted larceny in case well, George is listening.
2: That's right. <laughs> he, he was never convicted.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. But one of the things I think is interesting and it kind of places wire pretty specifically in terms of their attitude towards punk is that one of the lecturers at the Watford School of Art was a fellow who Colin would sometimes get a lift to the school, there were a couple of lecturers, and one of them happened to be Brian Eno. So, he was getting a lift to college with Brian Eno, mm-hmm. who had recently left Roxy Music. And I was, you know, like an absolute I don't know how you would have related to Brian Eno. <laughs> he went from
0: Roxy Music to being an Uber driver. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's Graham, right.
2: Graham, he was always ahead of the time. He
1: was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think also, um. Colin Newman describes it in terms of those trips to the Watford School of Art. He would just carry on about his crackpot theories about art and they would listen to him. And he said, that's when I really started to feel like an artist. And that means that feeling like an artist meant that you had basically nothing but contempt for punk, probably, because you're an artist and punk was kind of stupid from an artistic perspective. So I think that was a really interesting starting point.
2: I was going to say they're all a bit older, once again, than, mm. than, than the punks that came up. Um, Colin Newman was born in 54, so he would have been 20-odd. Uh, Graham yep. Lewis, the same. They're all a little bit older. So mm. my description of it was that they were ready for punk when it came along, but mm. they, could, they, they were sort of bored with what else was out there. But they certainly weren't part of that scene, though, like a lot of bands we've talked about, they saw an opportunity to maybe be heard. And, and they weren't particularly proficient when punk came along either. So they were kind of just learning what they were doing. And yeah, by the time, you know, 76 rolled around, as you say, they kicked out George Gill. And I I think by the end of that year, 76, they had already taken on the name Wire. But whether he was in it or not, I'm not sure. But essentially the band as it was with the four members who we should name as well as Bruce Gilbert and Robert Gray or Go To Bed, as he's often called yep, the drummer, yep. were ready to go and in fact did... Well, I've got their first gig at the end of 76 under Mm. that name as a four-piece with the idea, they say, of destroying rock and roll, of reducing it down to its barest elements without that kind of Chuck Berry-ish kind of thing, but really kind of more influenced by maybe US punk and and kraut rock and things like that. Mm. You you had that that cassette of them playing, that, that sort of show, early show Mm. Uh, in 77, which was uh, live at the Roxy, like, whatever mm. it was called, had the Buzzcocks, X-ray specs, the adverts, people like that, which was recorded in April, I think, in 77. So yeah. they kind of went very, very quickly into this scene, and yet were very much not a part of that scene, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. Mm. There were
1: certainly artists above all. I mean, three of the four of them had been to art school, and I think they, thought that rock and roll, as you say, the uh, Chuck Berry school of rock and roll, was really old hat and stodgy. The rock and roll excess of the likes of Jagger and The Who and all that, particularly like the 70s style kind of excess of those kind of bands, was ridiculous. They thought the posturing of punk was ludicrous. They thought the the political stance of bands like The Clash was puerile. So they basically hated everything Mm. (laughs) apart from maybe the likes of Roxy Music and Bowie and the sort of the artier end of the spectrum. And I think they were just a lot more interested in sort of art for art's sake in the kind of purest sense of it. So kind of deconstructing the music to its simplest form, and that was an artistic thing for them as much as it was them trying to play you know, rock music because there was nothing
2: about that. Well, I think they took music as the form that they would express themselves with. Um, they weren't musicians. I've got a quote here from Colin Newman saying, I could play a little guitar, but I mainly just wrote the tunes. Graham claimed to be able to play the bass, but he didn't <laughs> feel that he actually could. Robert merely claimed to have access to a drum kit and Bruce had just begun to play guitar by simply putting his finger on a string somewhere. So <laughs> it was really like, well, maybe punk provides the opportunity for us to uh, once again get on board with this, and and what's interesting is 1977, they they basically formed, did their first show very close to that year, got an album deal, and had released their first album all within that year, which was Pink Flag. Mm. But it's just quite an incredible moment in yeah, time yeah, to have yeah. done so much from a standing start to having but having done this by whatever time of the year that Pink Flag was released at the end of the year mm. 77. <laughs>
1: Well, I did read that they'd only played 15 gigs as wire, something along those lines, when they went into the studio. So given how you've described their musicianship, it's like they really didn't have much idea what they were doing and they were kind of learning on the spot in the studio. And as we all know, as former musicians or current musicians who have been in studio scenarios, it's a very unforgiving environment to hear your own instrument exposed you know your own playing of the instrument exposed as starkly once it's separated from the other instruments you know channel mm. by channel by channel you hear how appallingly you're playing something
2: there's nowhere to um, hide <laughs> no
1: no no that's right and i think that's what the members of wire found when they were in the studio
2: should we talk about mike thorne was the was the anr man at uh, a sub label of emi which was harvest i believe yeah and he yeah. saw them at that gig that graham's talking about that he had the cassette of and for some reason they picked them out of the bunch as a group that he could possibly see some potential in. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's really interesting given that Harvest at that time had the Saints on there, Pink Floyd, yeah. Little <laughs> River Band, Australia's Little River Band were <laughs> wow. on there. So they were really looking for diverse. Companies. Wow, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they still were. But also I believe that being part of EMI, they were looking for something out of the carnage of the Sex Pistols experiment. Yeah. <laughs> and went, we we need to get onto this new wave punk bandwagon, but we're not going to have another one of these bands. <laughs> just yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Problems. Maybe these guys, and Mike Thorne being the A&R guy, takes credit for, for seeing their potential in them and then becoming their producer, certainly for the first three albums that they subsequently did anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, should we talk about Pink Flag or do we want to, what do you yeah. think?
0: We can go into Pink Flag.
1: yeah. Yeah. So. Did you say
2: pink, pink Floyd Graham or Pink Flag?
0: <laughs> I think that was a um, a Floydian slip. <laughs> Very good. Very
1: good <laughs> so Pink Flag, how do
2: we feel about that? Okay. Well, we'll, we'll take it in turn, shall we? Um, mm. I reckon we should ask Graham first because I reckon. Yeah. yeah. I reckon I know what he thinks, but I'm going to ask him <laughs> for a change. Graham, I'm not going to tell you what I think he you thinks. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> I think um, I'll just give our listeners a bit of backstory here. <laughs> is that I've already told Mark, I think, via text message that I was having trouble getting into the first... (laughs) I almost said Pink Floyd again. I (laughs) had trouble getting into the Pink Flag album, but I realized that the problem I was having with it was when I was listening to it, I was listening to it while I was reading the lyrics on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever done this with Wire... But the lyrics don't kind of follow the music as you'd expect, so I was getting quite frustrated with it, and I realised that that was a mistake because I went back and listened to the album with, you know, just having it in the background while I was doing the dishes or something, and I enjoyed it a lot better because I wasn't concentrating on what they were singing about; I was just kind of listening to the music. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my, my first interesting in, my first impressions of it weren't accurate. I think I was probably listening too close, maybe. Oh, so
1: how, how how do you feel about it now, Brad?
0: I feel a, a lot. I feel a lot better about it now. I
2: don't know when that's the right thing to say. I, I'm sure they're happy to hear that. Yes.
1: If
0: the members of Wire are listening, all is forgiven. I really like three girl rumba. And um, some of the songs, like they're all very short, that they seem to rattle through them really quickly, which was the style at the time. There are some great riffs here and there. There are some songs that are bizarre. I don't know why they even pursued with it because they're only like sixty seconds long or something. But um, yeah, uh, one two XU, as I've mentioned, I I really like. And the oh one oh six beats that. I have no idea what the song's about, but I really like that.
2: It's about how many syllables you can fit into a, a single song. Is it? So that you can mm-hmm. do it in under a 100, and I don't think they're managed. Um, given that uh, Graham Lewis writes a lot of the, the lyrics, I think that was some sort of challenge that he set himself to write, to write that, <laughs> which he failed.
0: Yeah, I read somewhere that the chord changes were based on names of train stations between London and Watford.
2: Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah.
0: And I can't work that out because the chords are C to G sharp. And some of the stations between London and Watford are Harrow and Wembley. How are they called? (laughs) It doesn't make sense.
2: (laughs) It's a W flat, Graham. (laughs) Have (laughs) you ever heard of that?
0: I'm playing a Harrow sharp and (laughs) a Wembley diminished. Yeah. Okay,
2: Paddy, you want to go next?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think why I wanted to make a bit of a statement about being different to punks and sort of breaking some of the rules. And so some of the rules they were breaking were having some slow songs or slowish songs like uh, Lowdown, for instance. Reuters the uh, opening track, having quite a lot of short songs, you know, 30 seconds, 50 seconds long, to make them really hard to pogo to. (laughs) This was their way of just being anarchic within the anarchic world of the self-styled anarchic world of punk. I think it's a really good punk album. I struggle to see how it isn't punk really, despite those couple of differences, because the Sex Pistols didn't play particularly fast tempos. Hmm. Anarchy in the UK is not a fast song. The Clash you know, certain songs on their debut album weren't that fast. Um, short songs, I mean, that was maybe a little bit unusual. But to me, I mean, people talk about this trilogy of albums as being like a boxed set as if they're all part of a continuum. But for me, Pink Flag feels really different as a kind of a prelude to the kind of main thing that y we're ultimately going to do. And I don't mean that to be critical of Pink Flag because I do. I do really like it and kind of unusual subject matter for songs and they were certainly not you know if they were railing against society they were doing it in a really obtuse way their songs were yeah kind of strange and funny and i think it's a really strong opening statement but it's a very 1977 kind Mm. of classic classic punk album for me anyway
2: i've heard it described as the second best punk album after nevermind the bollocks and i Kind of would probably almost give it that because it has a vision, has an idea of what it wants to do. Somebody described the sound as kind of slabs of geometric sound. The guitar is very sharp. Everything is very short and clean. It reminds me of television, you know, the American mm, sort of stuff. Mm. It also reminds me of the Buzzcocks, like, that just that. well, do, do, fine, well, sort of, you know, the songs <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, but they're yeah. interesting. They're interesting, the chords. Some of the guitar work is really quite different. It's not just power, major power chords. There's a, a lot of stuff in there, but you've got to give it a good listen. It's, it's not... I mean, there's a lot in there. there's 21 songs in 35 minutes. Mm. Mm. I'm the same as you guys. I I wasn't super familiar with it, but the more I listen to it now, if I'd heard that in 1977, I reckon I would have flipped. It's Mm. difficult to, to listen to something with all the context we have now and place it somewhere. But as you said, Graham, listening to it in a different way, I think is a really good starting point. I think it's a great starter for people in Britpop into that sound, would love this sort of stuff. I mean, Elastica obviously used Three Girl Rumba on one one of their tracks and there was a lawsuit over that. They've been used and, if not sampled, at least been referenced by a whole lot of people, as you say, do Johnny Mars and... uh, and Robert Smith and different people yeah. reference that not this album especially but I think it's a great starting point as I said to do something different as an art statement to say we're not the same as everybody else. we're akin to this scene but we are not of this scene and mm-hmm. being difficult and arty was certainly what they wanted to do and I think They definitely achieved that with this.
1: It's interesting talking about the album in that kind of, you know, had I heard it at the time sort of way, because it doesn't surprise me in a way that it didn't have the kind of cut through of other albums or other bands because they didn't have a a particularly distinctive image. There wasn't an obvious hit single, there was really nothing to kind of leap out in the way that there was with political bands like The Class or Johnny Rotten at the front of the Sex Pistols, Stranglers with their really distinctive sound. So I can see why they would have been disappointed not to have had more success with the album, although I think, you know, in some ways they were amazed that they even managed to make an album, <laughs> given their, you know, their starting point a few weeks earlier. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, it was for me, it was just a, a solid contender, and it was the later albums, which... Managed this, to is the,
2: this is the big question. Was it better than the LRB album that came out in 77, you know, on the same label?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question. Was that the Diamantina cocktail?
2: Well, Patty, I'm going to throw it to you, I can. I don't know what mm. that was. But the label mates, the whole backstory to that is just fascinating to me. But And, and I yeah, think yeah. they said that they thought EMI kind of saw them as a progressive punk band that might be able to go into interesting territory, you know, beyond, which I certainly think they did with the following albums.
1: Mm. And it was certainly interesting having the A&R guy from EMI basically coming in twiddling the knobs, being such a kind of a svengali almost. Spengali. <laughs> Spengali. Okay. And just, uh, you know, becoming the kind of clichéd fifth member almost right from the start.
2: Um, I would also want to point out that Mike Thorne later produced Tainted Love for Soft Cell. So <laughs> there's a big leap from Pink Flag to Tainted Love. I mean, he did other mm. things as well, but I was just really interested in that, that he yeah, yeah. sort of producer of note later on after not really having any great background before that in music. It's
1: interesting that we think of WIRE maybe not having had a huge influence by that stage because Robert Smith, for instance, had said about WIRE that when we were playing Cubs, as in mature, we were playing Cubs in 76 through the summer of 77, we had some songs that were kind of in a punk style, pretty thrashy. Luckily, they were abysmal. It was actually seeing WIRE that gave me the idea to follow a different course to hold out against the punk wave. I felt if we play loud and fast, we're going to go down with the shit if we do that, and seeing WIRE pointed out another direction to me.
2: I had that that the, they supported Wire and basically mm, ah, yeah. that was the story that he had a big argument with the band afterwards, his band, The Cure, saying we need to do yeah more things like this, otherwise we're going to get tagged in with punk forever. And um, that was kind of, he said, I wasn't even particularly a fan of Wire, but I saw them as leading the way out of punk, which I would agree with, which brings us to Chairs Missing, the second album, which was released in August 78. I'm going to go out on a Wire. Yes, very good. And say that this album is as influential a post-punk album as anything else that I would throw up there and say i think is a huge influence for this to come out in 78 it's just mind-blowing because public images album came out december 78 uh, magazine june 78 susie november 78 going for the following year so wire have done something on this album that had only been kind of not even hinted at i don't think by anybody Mm, else Uh, with Mike Thorne producing again. But they introduced synthesizers, which was just really outside of the stranglers, was probably not something a lot of people were comfortable with. Mm. They also had the idea of treating the guitars as synths, which Gary Newman obviously took around with a little bit later. The heavily sort of treated sounds that are on this are just phenomenal and I don't know, I can listen to this. This is probably my first introduction to them properly a few years ago and I was just blown away by the fact that I wasn't super familiar with it and how the hell did I ever miss it. Okay, well,
0: well, the question is, guys, did they invent post-punk?
2: You know what? It's a, it's a solid claim because mm. you, you could certainly make a case for any number of songs on here having a huge influence. I Am The Fly mm. is the second single. There's nothing like that out there prior to this. I Am The Fly Great song. song. The guitar sound is amazing. Even Dot Dash, which which was a non-album single, fantastic. Some critics decried them as punk Floyd, which, you know, we've heard that phrase used before. It's gone a little bit kind of trippy, a little bit hippy. Yeah, yeah. I would probably think that's fair enough. I'm going to just go on for a little bit longer because I think the Cure influence is really evident in songs like Heartbeat. French film. The guitar sound that Robert Smith was going to explore, I think was taken from here. The chorus bass sound on being sucked in again. fantastic a certain ratio amongst other bands magazine other people would have used that even another the letter is a very devo track and i know devo were around in 78 but if these two bands weren't listening to Mm. each other i'd be Mm. awfully surprised
1: well i think we were talking about how they wanted to be taken seriously as artists and colin newman did say regarding punk and so on we weren't talking about living in council flats and being on the Dole. We were into Marcel Duchamp, a French conceptual artist. Our generation was the first to bring the criticality that you find in fine art to music. With WIRE, there was a cultural savvy. And they can sometimes speak in slightly alienating ways, the members of
2: WIRE. <laughs> um, I think but, it's deliberate, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I think the point is, is well made about how they were trying to do something just completely different. And in terms of... Their contemporaries. I mean, I think of a Magazine. One or two songs on the Real Life album, "The Light Pours Out of Me," is something kind of really fresh and really different, uh, nice and sleazy. Stranglers around about the same time, but apart from that, the experimentation with sound, building soundscapes, and that was really what they were doing.
2: And leaving spaces, um, lots of spaces. Yeah, yeah. It?
1: What strikes me about like Stranglers and Magazine around that time is that they were still kind of just playing a bunch of songs was why we're kind of constructing an album with Mm. this record almost sort of note by note and bar by bar and interestingly kind of peculiar guitar sound by interestingly weird rhythm or keyboard type sound. And they were certainly assisted by the new technology that had just come out. So around almost between Pink Flag and Chairs Missing, a whole bunch of effects like guitar effects and maybe other types of sound-generating devices had become available and they were cheap. And Mm so, Wire, just particularly Thorne, grabbed them all, handed them out to the band members, said, go home, come back in the morning with something interesting, and they would just pile all this fresh new stuff coupled with their artistic sensibilities. And it was a great formula, along with Mike Thorne's just generally experimental state of mind. Great formula for, for coming up with something unique.
2: And hugely influential. Graham, what's your take on Chairs Missing?
0: <laughs> After my uh, experience with Pink Flag, yeah, I just thought this was amazing. I really like outdoor minor. The reason why I asked you guys before about whether they invented post-punk, there was a great quote here where he was saying, um, Rob, go to bed. I'm sure his mother must have given him that uh, that nickname. (laughs) Rob had been surrounded by reggae in Brixton, so he plays off the guitars. There was a reggae groove. And Graham is a melodic bass player, and as you know, At the time, bass players were brought to the fore and Bruce played these arpeggios. He said, it felt dark and mirrored the times and I knew that this was something nobody had heard before. And he said, with hindsight, you might say we'd invented post-punk. So Mm.
2: um, I think that's a fair call, I really do.
0: I reckon for whatever reason, they came up with a lot of the hallmarks that we now see of as distinctly post-punk. I Am A Fly, which is, it sounds like how a fly would hear music, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Mm. <laughs> it's kind of an, an unusual, wow. an unusual effect on it. That's um, right. Practice makes mm, perfect mm. is really
2: good. Mm. Yeah, that's great too. I, I there's not it's hardly a bad song on there. There's not much feel yeah. I put it that way. I mean, yeah. there's not a lot that I would skip on this.
1: Yeah. Um, well, "Practice Makes Perfect" the opening track, I think it's a fantastic opening number and it immediately like from the first 10 seconds you realize this is not Pink Flag Mark 2. It's something completely fresh. Mm. And this this album I don't know if we said it was released in August '78, but you know, it was like 8 months after the previous album and it's just in a completely different kind of realm altogether and apparently Practice Makes Perfect was the template for the band that all the way through recording that was the song that was the kind of launching pad for everything else you know is it as good as Practice Makes Perfect and an influence that hasn't really been mentioned is Brian Eno and his solo albums Another Green World for instance the kind of sonic experimentation that he was getting into you do hear quite a bit of that on this album but Eno was, was not bringing any kind of youthful you know, punk energy.
0: Well he was still driving at that point I think.
2: <laughs> he was flat out
1: Uber yeah. driving. <laughs> That's right but yeah so the combination of the arty thing but there's still a punk edge regardless mm. of whether why we're disowning punk or not. It really needed punk to kind of give it that freshness and rawness to, despite the kind of quite produced sound that they were coming up with.
2: It still sounds very fresh to me now. I mean, an mm. interesting quote from Henry Rollins, who's a massive um, fan of this, said every album they did of those three sounds like it was by a completely different band. Mm-hmm. And, and I would agree with it. It's a pink flag to this, as you say, Patrick, in eight months or something. You would just go, how can these be the same guys? How have they come up with this in such a mm-hmm. short mm-hmm. space of time? I wanted to point out that it actually did chart this album. It reached number 48 in the UK, which would yep. have been some yep. achievement for them. But Outdoor minor, which you mentioned, Graham, which was a single, was uh, EMI were caught chart rigging on this. So this is a pretty well-known story, <laughs> but which was a practice which is not unheard of, I suppose, or probably still goes on, of going around and buying up copies from the certain stores where the charts uh, were registered. And so they were caught doing that. And so kind of the, the chances of Outdoor minor becoming a hit were cruel, to paraphrase. <laughs> yes. that, but, um And they kind of didn't have the success with it that they may have, deserved or thought that they should have had. It still stands up now regardless of that. 48 is not bad in 1978. It's not seen the world all right.
1: What you say about Outdoor Minor is really interesting because it's one of my kind of less favourite songs on the album because it is relatively straightforward. Comparatively, yeah. Quite a sweet poppy song. And it was um, about a type of worm, wasn't it? About a type of insect. (laughs) so
2: so well, this, yeah, this is what you get when you get other people writing your lyrics like Colin Newman said yeah you know, yeah I'm supposed yeah. to be singing about love and various things and here I am singing about insects which, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is what yeah, happens yeah. when you don't yeah. write your own lyrics yeah no that's <laughs> right
1: but one interesting point that Mike Thorne raised he said that had the top of the pops appearance happened they would have been eligible for it if the single had hit the top 40 and it stalled at number 51 that Mike Thorne said that the single would almost certainly have entered the top 20 and launched a visible commercial career for the group, but I think it could potentially have crueled their career completely there to, is to have had a hit single with a really poppy, relatively slight song. Hmm. Well, well, it's not slight because it's about as, as something as important as the natural world which sustains us all. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless... Bugs, <laughs> but nonetheless, imagine how the music press and, you know, the kind of more hardcore music fans of the day would have reacted to Wire having like a smash hit single with this poppy song. That might have been the end of them. That might have been the last we ever heard of them.
2: Well, they, they were really critically well received for these albums so far. Mm. So that's the interesting thing. But they just, yeah. as you say, they had no image or a non-image. They dressed in black on stage. They had this blinding white light stage show. There was not a lot of interaction with the audience. They refused to play songs from the current album when they went yeah, on tour. Yeah. They would always not do that. It's about as punk as you can get. They were just completely difficult and hard to get on with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in that kind of way, which you know people like Radiohead would uh, would take up again, you know, thirty years later almost refusing to play the game and as you say if they'd had a hit single with this that probably would have been the worst thing that could have happened to them <laughs> in their own eyes could have been um we were we were up to five singles by this point. point two question of degree which was a non-album mm. track was was their fifth single
1: question of degree. Circumstances
2: me. by this point mm-hmm. so they were sort of having a crack at this stuff
1: and they weren't afraid, like with "I Am the Fly, that's another really snappy song, which also was a single. So they weren't afraid of, for all their reputation of being difficult and whatever, they were releasing the most commercial songs from their albums as singles. So they mm. weren't completely self-sabotaging in that kind of single way.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the band was split into two halves. They always talk about, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the sort of arty half and the poppy half, and I think that was where you get that interesting mixture of results, which um, yeah, you yeah, get, yeah. you certainly get on this album particular and even a little bit more so on the on the third album. Mm. Um, should we move on to that album? I mean, I could talk about Chairs Missing All Day, but I know that mm. we need to keep going. But I, I just will put it out there again. I think it's one of the all-time greats. I'd put it up there with Secondhand Daylight with any, any of my top four or five. Post punk mm-hmm. albums, there have said it.
1: So, would it be in your top five? If we did each of our favourite top five post punk albums, would it uh, sneak in there? If, you, I think, if we I did think it again, it probably,
2: I think it probably would. I'd have to readdress the order and have a look at it. I think I'd still put closer at number one. For any for any of you who want to go back and listen to our, yeah, our yeah, top yeah. five selections, uh, I still would put closer up there. But yeah, it's 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 certainly right in there. It's it's phenomenal. The sound of it still thrills me now when I hear it. It's just like the production of the ideas on it across 80% of it is just fantastic.
1: There's no good place to, to put this snippet of information because it doesn't fit in anyway, but I would like to say that apparently Robert Go to Bed is not his real name. His real name was Robert Gray, but yes. apparently Go to Bed was the original family surname and his grandfather changed it because he claimed... That you had trouble being taken seriously with a surname like Go <laughs> So the idea that Robert Go that was his original surname—that he went back to—is really quite something. It doesn't really fit into the wires musical story, but it's such a peculiar. So,
0: so he was one of the um, the Watford Go to <laughs> I
1: don't. I don't think it was Watford. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, oh, okay, the well-rested Go That's
2: it. <laughs> I also want to throw in something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I'm going to, you're going to hopefully Graham, shift it to a spot where it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. The other day I heard the opening eight bars of a track called "Keep on Runnin" by the Spencer Davis group. From 1967, Graham, you're a lot older than. Paddy and I, you all know this. I remember that back in the 60s. Back in the 60s, <laughs> 1967. And, and I was listening to it going, wow, I know this, but I don't know what it is. And I thought, I reckon Wire have based pretty much all of their musical ideas on this because it's got this kind of like straight up and down beat. It's got this kind of bouncy bass, but the guitar alone, it's really sparse and it's kind of uh-huh. cold and engaging at the same time. Really? If they're not influenced by that, I'll be very surprised because mm. I found it hard to find the things that they admitted to be influenced. Line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't yeah. really talk about their musical. Yeah. They like, oh, we didn't mind this, we didn't mind that, but it was no great mm. sort of like this is no. where we were coming from, which is fine mm. because obviously they don't want to give that away. They were certainly disdainful yeah. of groups that they influenced. They felt mm. like our Joy Division, for example, they dismissed them as being too derivative of wire, which is a pretty mm. hard thing to say in 78, yeah. <laughs> 79. Yeah, these yeah, guys, yeah, they're, yeah. they're ripping us off. I don't think they were. You don't think they were? I don't think they were. Oh, I can hear a little bit of... That in there, yeah, I think Joy, yeah. I think Joy Division certainly played with Wire a couple of times, and yeah. they, I, I think they would have been influenced by them. Maybe a little bit more on the on the next um, album, but yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's another story.
1: I think there are definitely influences there. I mean, Heartbeat sounds a bit like Velvet Underground's "Waiting for the Man" the way it starts, for instance. And there's a little bit of Hermans Hermits <laughs> in some go. of the vocal, some of the vocals. Of the kind of popular songs, those sorts of bands.
0: You mean Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter.
1: <laughs> you really are old, Graham.
2: <laughs> 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 I want to
0: nail exactly what Herman's Hermit's song this is.
2: <laughs> you've got to remember oh. these, these guys are in their mid-twenties for the most part, but Bruce Gilbert was almost 10 years older than that. So they, mm. you know, they weren't young guys.
1: Bruce Gilbert apparently did, he was in his early 20s, I think, when Sgt. Peppers came out. And I think he thought it had too many notes, which is <laughs>
2: Which is pretty funny. That's a a pretty harsh criticism, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. Shall we talk about the third album? Yes, let's go to 154. 154, released in September 1979, apparently named after the number of gigs they had done to that point. Mm. So 154 gigs in around about two years or so. Mike Thorne, producer again. I think this is a really interesting album in that it sort of signals a departure without pointing where it's going. It's a little bit of everything in there. It's not as good as um, Chairs Missing, but it's got a lot of really good stuff on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've kind of listed a few songs. The standout track is obviously map reference, 41 degrees north, 93 degrees west, which is such a unique song in its own own Mm -hmm. sense. We'll talk about that in a minute. I really liked um, the 15th. was covered by Fisher Spooner, New York kind of art Mm -hmm. experience band in 2002. Fantastic version. (laughs) Blessed State is just a really beautiful pop song, beautiful guitar. And going to your point before, Graham, a touching display. Feels very Joy Division to me with the guitar, yeah. especially the atmospherics of it. Remember, this is September '79, mm. so mm. this is the kind of territory, I suppose, of what's happening at the time. Um, there's a little bit more of the arty experimentation in there, and a bit, a bit less of what I liked about Chairs Missing. But it's still a fantastic album. There's a lot to, to love about it, and it charted a little bit higher than the previous album. But that's my take on it. Um, Graham, your thoughts?
0: Yes. I really like uh, Map Ref, <laughs> 41 Degrees North. I, I
2: knew you would love that. If you don't love that song, I don't know you. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It was covered by My Bloody Valentine, and, and they do a pretty good version of it as well.
2: The harmonies are stunning, aren't
0: they? Yeah, no, it's a a really great pop song. Um, Mm. Being the nerd that I am, I looked up those uh, map coordinates. (laughs) Yes. And it's actually in Iowa, in America, between Olbia and Charlton.
2: There's some dispute about this, Graham. Some some people say it's Centerville, Illinois. This is what um, the, the writer of the track, Graham Lewis, wrote the lyrics, said. Hmm. it's about this doesn't seem to be any clear indication of which it is
0: well interestingly he studied geography at both an o and a level so um he had a fascination for for map reading
2: he did
1: say that he wrote the song it was about the first time i would ever flown across america which i found quite astonishing the second part of the song is about driving through the lowlands of holland where you've got another grid system all canals so i hitched those two things together. It wasn't sabotage or subversion. I like Maps. Maps are good.
0: Yeah, Maps are great. But yeah, an interesting um, subject for a pop song, I guess. I uh, also like The 15th and uh, yeah, I didn't like it as much as Chairs Missing but I guess it's my second favourite <laughs> out of those three albums. Fair call. Yeah. Eddie.
1: Well, I think we're in unison about several of these songs. The 15th is great. It's quirky, catchy. Weird pop, kind of a precursor of Kidney Bingo's, one of their later singles, of like late 80s singles, which I really like. Single K.O. Mm-hmm. I really like, it's uh, reminiscent of Magazine. Blessed State, again, how many guitars are there towards the end of Blessed State? There are three or four. I haven't heard that many guitars together since One Ton of error by the 50 guitars of Tommy Garrett. The kind of competing and complementary guitar lines towards the end of Blessed Stay are just beautiful to kind of hear them kind of chiming together. Once is enough, Joy Division-ish kind of guitar sounds and the sort of breaking glass kind of of sound. (laughs) And I would say that a song that I really don't think works particularly or isn't great is "A Touching Display," which sounds like oh. um, I reckon. Anyway, it sounds like a jam sort of struggling for a song to break out of it, and it feels a little bit like an inferior version of Magazine's "Permafrost."
2: I to just make- love the gu- I love the guitar, and I hear what you're saying, but it's one of those ones you've got to settle in for. It goes it goes for a while.
1: Yeah, I might change my mind about that tomorrow, but 40 versions is the last track on the album and with its rubbery bass line and the other effects, I really, I really like it. It's very hard to pin down because it's barely a song, the way it kind of holds together and the kind of disparate elements of it. And in that sense, it's a great way to kind of end the Wire trilogy because it is... A peculiar song to end a peculiar album which isn't as good probably as Cheers Missing. I still like it. I never know which version I'm going to be. I seem to have so many choices open to me. Those two albums, the second and third wire albums. Uh, a bit of a continuum, I think, in terms of how they have affected bands, how they've influenced bands subsequently, mm. because they were so determinedly following their own path and obviously influencing, you know, the likes of Joy Division and the Cure and, and who knows who else, you know, coming six, 12 months later and years and decades later. So I think both of these albums are fantastic. And from my point of view, they've cemented the wire legend that none of us were really aware of.
2: Yes, embarrassing as it is. Well, this is a year after the previous album again. It's just an, an amazing achievement. Apparently, it's a very difficult album to record. And Mike Thorne was sort of basically on his way out after this. He's, mm. he's just saying it's becoming too hard. It wasn't an enjoyable experience. They also had a free single released with this called Get Down Parts 1 and 2, which is basically really experimental and kind of odd. Not particularly listenable, though they did have another single called Our Swimmer, which was released, I'm sorry, which was recorded around the same time in 79, but not released until later on Rough Trade, which is worth a listen.
0: Displaying an interest in forward
2: but the original version is very, very good, and it's backed with another song called Midnight Bahnhof Cafe. Uh, which is also really interesting. But, yeah, that didn't come out till 81. But that's sort of, it's a shame because it's a great track and it may have given them that success they did or didn't crave. Though if you can't have a hit single with Map Reference, where he even mm. you know, even, yeah, yeah, yeah. even tells you it's going to be the chorus. You know how you guys like it when people tell you what they're going to yeah, be? Um, yeah, I like guitar? Bit. He says chorus. Yeah. My out-of-left-field
1: theory about the Map Reference song is that... Um, with those competing guitar sounds and really different guitar sounds, it did remind me a little bit of fashion, the Bowie song, and it was it was about you know 12 months ahead of you no know, fashion, so. Mm. You know, well, I'm Dave,
2: David Bowie's not one to really take other people's ideas and use <laughs> them, so I don't know why you would suggest that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's preposterous, and I'm not even positing it. I'm just thinking aloud,
2: just throwing it out there. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Can we all agree those three albums uh, are worthy contenders for most influential? And look, Mm. once again, that's that's 77, 78, 79, three albums, so vastly different and and so influential. Is it worth us going on, and I know we talked about this a little bit before, but now that we've reached the the end of that Wire trilogy, I still think it's worth talking about the first Colin Newman solo album, which came out uh, about a year later called Ace Said, I don't know whether you want to just touch on it. I don't want to go into it mm. hugely. But I think it's an, an, a logical step from, from these three albums because it was produced by Mike Thorne. He managed to get him back on board. It was also Robert Gotobed uh, on drums. It was just basically the same band but with a different bass player mm. um, for, for whatever reason. A, uh, Colin Newman drafted in his old school chum, Desmond Simmons, on bass. I really like this album. I know I'm going to talk about it. It was on Beggar's Banquet. It's quite poppy in places. It's still quite experimental. We've got songs like I've Waited Ages, which reminds me a little bit of Howard DeVoto doing magazine. So and Jury. Alone and the song called Twice A Made.
1: Which, What's the our, which is our French the
2: third. Okay. This sort of gave me a Gary Newman kind of vibe. It was yeah, kind of heavy, yeah, yeah. heavy synthy thing. Like, yeah, it is, yeah. A logical progression from that from the, the previous album. <laughs> As I said, I don't want to talk about it too much, but it came out in October eighty. And uh, obviously the band had pretty much split at the end of the, the, the 154 session.
0: So Graham Lewis didn't play bass on this?
2: No, no, he didn't. Desmond Simmons played bass. Are
0: we sure that he didn't just break his leg? <laughs>
2: Falling down the stairs Falling with an in You know what they're like? He just replaced him, yeah. <laughs> well, it was interesting that he got in his old schoolmate because apparently Colin used to be in the band that was Desmond Simmons's band and then he kind of oh. turned around and said, "Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. in a band now. It's called Wire. Can you be in my band and play bass for me? Which he didn't do very well, too. He did a great job. Yeah, anyway, that's my take on that album, Patty.
1: Yeah, I I don't know the album very well, but yeah, I do like the songs you mentioned. And uh, Order for Order is mentioned as being a kind of a John Fox, Gary Newman kind of song. It's a bit too fast for my liking. I prefer the kind of slower tempo ones. But um, it sounds like a fully realised album. You know, it is isn't one mm. of those solo albums where you think, where's the rest of the band gone? Because it's got no bottom end, it's got mm. no drums. It's like it feels like a really full sound. Mm. But it is interesting to contrast it with the many recordings that Gilbert and Lewis did during that time, that they recorded four or five EPs and albums in 1980 and 81 under various mm. names and pseudonyms which took kind of odd, largely instrumental albums and you got a sense of where the schism might have been between the band members because the relatively poppy Colin Newman album and the extremely experimental and peculiar Gilbert and Lewis recordings. It was probably good that they did break up when they did and, you know, it does sound as if the 154 sessions were, were, were pretty difficult. Yeah, I think it was a good time for them to break up and it was just kind of ironic that they have subsequently made something like, like WIRE have subsequently released something like 17 albums, given yeah. that in some ways considered to be defined by those three albums. But, you know, they're still coming up with stuff which, you know, like the bits I've listened to of the more modern albums I really like. Mm. So, you know, they're not just a bunch of
2: housemates. It's interesting that that they were broken up for, well, not broken up, they just didn't work together for about 10 years. But I think when they got together and the management said, you're going to have to play some of the, um, you know, the old stuff, and of course they didn't want to do that, they hired a band in yeah. the States who played Pink Flag, <laughs> note for note, as <laughs> yeah. a support, which I really think is just perversely wire. We're not going to play mm. this album. However... Our support we yeah, yeah, yeah. will take care of that need for you and play the whole album from start to finish. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just so brilliantly perverse and so wire. Wow. Um, it's very
1: art. It's so just, art.
2: It is, so it art. is.
1: When they reformed without one band member, I, I can't remember whether it was Robert G- bed or not, but with only three of them, they called themselves WIR, as in W-I-R.
2: So hmm. it's
1: like, you know, they were fr- from four to three, so let's lop a letter off.
2: And yeah. well, I must have been... T- Taken. No, they couldn't use ir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, I'm not sure if you, if you pronounce it were or weir or what, but I, I like to, to, to pronounce it were, W-I-R, as in past tense of are. Yes. So, you know, Very it works on a couple of different levels. The sensibility wire brought to post-punk was completely unique in that there were some art-house people involved, some serious philosophical types from Howard Devoto to all of those people who went to art school. But Raya were just so pure on their course. They never steered off that course. And you know they always stayed true to themselves and they broke up kind of when they should have done, after three albums. And uh, yeah, I, I just think their contribution, difficult to overestimate.